bad or happy? I don't know. <laughs> Some of us are coming back. All right, can I hold you to that? All right. Take your Bibles this morning, and uh, I want you to find two places. First of all, go to 1 John 3, put something in there, and then go and find uh, Proverbs 3. We're going to start in 1 John, and then we're going to back into Proverbs, because I think it's got an incredibly good definition for what we're really going to look at today. All right? So today, we're going to talk about this question, what is sin? So let me ask you that. What is sin? Not everybody at once. Be considerate of your neighbor. What is sin, church? Doing wrong. Um, we, we've also used the Westminster Catechism. Elizabeth, what was the Westminster definition? What is sin? You were saying it the other day. Any want of... The lack of... Okay, the lack of conformity to God's law or any transgression against God's law. What else is sin? What do you think of it? Rebelling against God? What else comes to mind? Disobedience. That's right, Willie. Hmm? Well, it is painful. That is definitely a result of sin, for sure. And that, that's in our definition in the, in the larger catechism today. Uh, definitely, sin definitely has a result, isn't it? The wages of sin is what? Death. Death, right? We probably have as many definitions of sin as we have people in here this morning. But at the end of the day, I got to looking at this. You know, how, when you preach a message on sin, you can go in a ton of different directions, right? So I wanted to step back and get a bigger picture of sin. And one of the things I discover is that God's Word has a lot to say about sin. Is that surprising to us today, that God's got a lot to say about sin? Matter of fact, you'll see this on the screen. Uh, the word sin itself is mentioned in 641 verses. Now, I didn't say times. I said verses. So a lot of, in a lot of these verses, it's repeated. So I'm just talking about verses. Um, and then I, I thought of some of the synonyms for sin. Iniquity is one of them. That shows up in 240 verses. Transgression shows up in 133. Now here's the thing I want you, that's over a thousand times, a thousand verses, but here's what you got to understand as you look at that, is that these terms on the board are just what I call umbrella terms. Um, in both mathematics and lo in the logic portion of math, we call this genus and species. Genus being the broader term and then species being the things. That are, these are the genus terms, the umbrella terms, if you will. And underneath these are what we, what we have as individual sins. Are you tracking with me? I don't even put those up there. When you start looking at, give me an example of some individual sins. We've been walking through the commandments. What's, what's an individual, what's a, what's a specific sin under that umbrella? Murder. That's the one I thought of too. I put it in my notes. So murder would be underneath that. We didn't even touch those. Uh, the, and when you, when you do, you discover that the Bible is absolutely full of dealing with this idea of sin. So here's, here's the question I came up with. Why does God's Word talk so much about sin? Why so much, God? I mean, there's a thousand times there, and those are the big words, and underneath them there are thousands more of, of the individual 
um, ideas under that fall underneath transgression, iniquity, and sin. Why is God is why is God so preoccupied with sin? Any ideas? Who said that? <laughs> they both said it. Because we are. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Because God knows where we live, doesn't he? He's got your address. He knows that we got sin problems, and it is our biggest problem. I love that. I did not expect that answer, especially from Jim Williams. God's so preoccupied with sin because we are. Somebody needs to tweet that out. I love it. God's so preoccupied with sin because we are. And he knew. And because at the end of the day, would you agree with me, he's a loving God. Amen. And sin hurts that which he loves. Right? Um, and here's, here's another question for you. We have those things that the scriptures call besetting sins. Right? That's an, old, that's an old-timey term. But those are our favorite sins, our pet sins, our go-to transgressions, our intimate iniquities. We know them. Those are the ones that, I used to say those are the ones we struggle with. I fear that the problem is we don't struggle with them. We just give in to them, right? Matter of fact, right now, I guarantee you, every single one of you could write at least one out on a paper. Right, couldn't you? Some of you would need a ream of paper because you have so many. <laughs> okay? Uh, but here, here's my question behind that one. I get those, and you get those. But here's the question. Do you think you sin more than just those that you are so very aware of? Right? I mean, we, we know the ones that trip us up all the time. But what about the ones we're unaware of? That used to, by the way, when I was a kid, that used to haunt me. And it was good. It was, it was the Holy Spirit preparing me. Theologians call it prevenient grace. It was the Holy Spirit getting me ready for a Savior. <laughs> okay? But they used to scare me. There's a thought that, okay, I know the sins that I'm doing, but what about the sins I'm not aware of? And I grew up under a theological construct that that became a big problem because I had no answer for it. But as I began to understand the whole of God's grace, I discovered there was a glorious answer inside the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Amen? Amen. But I think there's a lot of sins that, that we commit that we don't even, we're not even aware of. And that should, that should frighten us. Paul Washer said this. I thought it was brilliant. Paul Washer said this. A man doesn't know how much he has sinned just like a fish doesn't know how wet it is. Does a fish know it's wet? No, no because it's just what the fish lives in. And I fear that we... As, as mankind in general, we are so sinful, we're not even aware of our sin, just like a fish is not even aware of the water that it lives in. I was at our house that's being rebuilt after the fire that we had in September. I was sitting there yesterday on the back deck, and uh, I happened to look over off the deck, and you notice everything's really super greening up right now? And thanks to these Sunday rains that the Lord has given us for the last three months, uh, it's just going to keep on going. But stuff is really sprouting. And when I looked over at the trees right next to our deck, I immediately spotted 
some really large poison oak vines that are growing up, and they're already deck height. That deck's 15 feet off the ground. And I, and I looked at that thing, and, and, I, and I got to thinking, I need to take care of that. Because I know that my children have inherited my propensity to not just get a patch, but to get covered from head to toe with that stuff. Um, and so I got to thinking, how am I going to get rid of that? I know they make this stuff called Roundup, but I'd have to get 15 feet up that tree because you got to treat every leaf. But then I got to looking at that thing. I said, you know, there's a vine. It's a vine. And instead of doing all that work and climbing up that tree, I could go to the bottom of that thing with a very long-handled snipper, and I could snip that vine at the bottom, and what's going to happen to every single leaf? It's going to die. So today, I want to expose to you the root of our sin problem. I don't have time to deal with every leaf of your sin. I don't even know what your particular sin is. I know mine, and it's none of your business. No. <laughs> but even in my own sin, my, my pet sins and my, my, my intimate iniquities, I only know what's there. I'm not aware of the plethora, and I think there's even more, of, of sin that's committed every day that I'm ignorant of. So I could try to deal with those and try to wake myself up to the realities of these others and I could spend my whole life and be defeated. Or, instead, we could get to the root of it. So I want to expose this root of sin so at a minimum you'll be acutely aware of both the problem and the solution to your own sin. And to help me do that, let me give you a couple of quotes and then I'm going to play a short video for you that I thought was so good that it needed to be played instead of read. John Piper said this, he said, The bottom of sin, the root of all sinning, is such a heart, a heart that prefers anything above God, a heart that does not treasure God over all other persons and all other things. You see, we're getting at the root of it, aren't we? What's the old saying? The heart of a matter is the matter of the what? Heart. It's a heart problem. St. Augustine put it this way, Again, another very brilliant man and, and, and one with whom I think God opened his eyes to see some things. Augustine said this, I inquired what iniquity was, and I found it to be no substance, but rather the perversion of the will. Turned aside from thee, O God, the supreme, towards these lower things. In other words, iniquity isn't a thing. It's a perversion of that which we already have, our will. And instead of our will trained to turn to God and value Him above all things, we turn to everything that is lesser and lower. That, does that kind of make sense to you today? It did to me too. So take a, two minutes and let's watch what, this is John Piper's response to the answer of what is sin. Let's, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. I've wondered about that for a while. I'm thinking, well, I can think of two other people at least that you sinned against there, pal. <laughs> it wasn't just God. But was David onto something? God, at the end of the day, you're the only one I've sinned against. 
I want to present to you today the idea that your sin, singular, your sin problem is a God problem. Someone once said this, and this term, I don't think it's a real term, but it should be. And I believe you'll understand what I'm saying when I say it. Sin is de-godding God. And we all have PhDs in it. Yeah? We have PhDs in de-godding God. So this big idea, this satellite view of sin, you'll find it in your bulletin this morning. It's, it's the larger answer to the question in our catechism is sin is rejecting or ignoring God. Think about this. In the world that He created, rebelling against Him by, this is so important, by living without reference to Him. Living without reference to Him. Not being or doing what He requires in His law. And of course, here's the result. Resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So let me unpack sin as simply as I can today to help us get real and hopefully by God's grace get right. Oswald Chambers said this, sin is a fundamental relationship. It is not a wrongdoing. It is wrong being. Deliberate and emphatic independence of God. I want you to ponder that for a minute. It's not wrongdoing. Wrongdoing is the fruit of wrong being. We are in a wrong relationship to Him who both created and redeemed us. And I, I, I want to focus this morning on this idea of living without reference to God. I would doubt highly, because I know just about every one of you in here today, I would doubt that I could point to anybody in this room today and say, you know what? She's an atheist. Matter of fact, if someone came to you and accused you of atheism, what do you think your response would be? Huh? What would your response be? Say, so, you know what? I think you're an atheist. Would, would that be offensive to you? Yes. Yeah. It would kind of make you buck up and say, no, what, are you crazy? But could I say that if someone could see, not hear any of your words, but only see your life, could we be accused of practical atheism? Are we atheists in practice? Because we have de-godded God. And we are firmly planted on the throne of our life. And even someone who doesn't know you very long can figure that one out. We live our life as if there is no God. I'll put it this way. Our lives are compartmentalized. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing the God thing on Sunday, but as soon as I walk out that door, I'm back on the throne. I'm back in business. And it's all about the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. We live as if there is no God. Or if there is a God, He has said nothing about how 
my life should be ordered according to who he is. But in reality, there is a God, and he said a whole lot about how our lives should be ordered in reference to who and what he is. Right? It's all there. So let me, let me give you, I just want to give you one illustration, maybe a way to think about it. And then we'll walk through what, these, what the ramifications of this might look like. When I say the law of gravity, what comes to your mind? What's that? Something falling, right? Um, would you agree with me that we all live our lives with a pretty firm understanding of the law of gravity? What happens when you don't? Yeah. You become convinced of it very quickly, don't you? Does the law of gravity ever say, oh, well, they don't know any better? I'll just, I'll just not pull them at high velocity to the center of the earth. No. You know, you could, you could say, well, I don't believe in the law of gravity. Well, that's nice, but the law of gravity firmly believes in you. <laughs> right? We don't question, we don't look at the law of gravity and say, you know what, that is such, a, that is such an unfair law. I'm going to choose not to order my life around it. Well, you can do that, but your life will probably be sooner rather than later filled with pain and injury and ultimately destruction and death. Would you agree with me? Gravity is a harsh master, and, sh and he does not suspend his laws for anything. And that's how come there's this unwritten law that says you don't walk off a cliff. It's a law. You, just, you don't do that. Why don't you walk off the cliff? Because there is a law of gravity. If gravity wasn't a law, would you be free to walk off a cliff? Yeah, no problem. You just float or whatever you do. But because gravity is a law, we do not walk off cliffs. So if you choose to walk off a cliff, you are disobeying the specific law that says don't walk off cliffs. However, in reality, you would not be living or ordering your life in reference to the law of gravity. And when you do not order your life in reference to the law of gravity, or if you are living as if gravity is of no consequence or importance in your life, you, you will soon discover the difficulties associated with that worldview. And that's why everybody you meet orders their life around the reality of the law of gravity. We don't despise the law of gravity because we understand and believe that we have to live our lives in reference to it. We have no other choice. We are convinced of the reality of the consequence of violating this law. Do you agree with me? All right, now look at the definition of sin in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. By the way, that just means living without ordering yourself around God's laws. And now he's going to make it real clear to us. Sin is what? Lawlessness. 
Sin is ordering your life around something, someone, some idea, some person. Generally, it's yourself or your ideas other than God. It is other than God's law. Is this making sense? Now flip over to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and here's where it comes clear. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Pretty clear there. It says, trust in the Lord with what? All your heart and lean not on what? Your own understanding. And in, and in how many of your ways? Do what? Acknowledge him. And what is he going to do? He's going to direct your path. So, so notice there's some superlatives. There's a lot of alls in here. Trust in the Lord with how much? Now let me stop right there. With all your heart. And don't lean on your... So here's something to do and something not to do. Here's what, here's what the word tells us to do. Trust God. How much are we supposed to trust God? Everything. You say, well, I don't know if I could do that. Nobody can really trust God with everything. You trust the law of gravity with everything in you? Don't tell me you can't trust God with all your heart. You live this every day in reference to the law of gravity. Your whole entire life is ordered around what you have come to understand of the law of gravity, isn't it? And if you can do it with gravity, you can do it with God who created gravity. I just want to take your excuses away this morning because I need to hear this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and stop leaning on your best ideas. How many of your best ideas have worked out for you? I'm telling you what, if I had time to share with you this morning how many of my best ideas have gotten me in the worst trouble of my life in relation to my Creator and Redeemer. Oh my. You don't have a better idea than the law of gravity. You just really don't. And so you forced yourself to adjust your entire life around it. That's why the very first, how many of you remember the very first time you took a plane ride? Did, not, not, did, you, did you not feel like you were violating the law of gravity and at any moment you were going to pay the ultimate price for it? Right? I remember the first time I took my son Zach uh, on an airplane. We were going up to see my parents in Massachusetts in the winter wonderland up there. And, uh, and he was nervous. I think he was like Jack's age, like three years old. And so he wasn't real keen on getting on that thing. And, and as that plane started taking off, you know when they hit the the booster so you can get going, he screams out as loud as he can, I want to drive. Because we told him we could either drive or fly to Nana. I want to drive. Well, it was a little too late, pal. <laughs> but even at three-year-old, he knew that there was, he knew intuitively there's something called gravity, and this thing is big and heavy, and there's no way we should be, uh, you know, flying. We should not be doing activities that, that fly in the face of this law of gravity. Now, he didn't understand inertia, lift, and all that stuff, and neither do I, but we get in that plane anyway. But intuitively, we know we are messing with the law of gravity, and that if something in that plane stops working, we're going to pay the ultimate price. Yes? That's your own understanding. And God says, don't do it. God doesn't say don't fly, but don't live your life without a complete reference to me in every aspect of it. Because when you do, the Bible says lawlessness is what? Sin. We've walked through the Ten Commandments over the last few months. Every sin. Think about all the Ten Commandments. One God, worship Him only, no idols. Right? Don't, take his don't carry God's name lightly or in vain. 
Honor the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your parents. No adultery. No murder. No stealing. No bearing false witness. And no coveting. Every single one of those commandments, when they are broken, what we have said is, I have a better idea than your idea, God, for my life. You know what sins are? Sins are shortcuts. Right? They're shortcuts. How do you think Satan tricked Eve? Well, I've got a shortcut for you becoming just like God. Check this out. You're not really going to die. You're going to be just like him. And, and in parentheses, and won't he be proud? And won't you be happy? Here's a shortcut. Now you can hang out with God and try to figure it out, but he's not giving you a lot of the information that I got for you. Here's a quick way to get it done. How'd that shortcut work out for them? Not so good. Shortcuts end up costing you everything. When I was a kid, I was fascinated, unnaturally so, with the idea of flight. And not just things flying, I wanted to fly. And, and I, got, I got into this idea of parachuting. I thought that was the coolest thing that you could, at, at least if you couldn't fly, you could float. And my brother Tim observed me and saw this fascination and hatched an evil plot to get rid of his little brother once and for all. Because he knew of this fascination of mine. And he knew of my ignorance of many scientific laws, not the least of which was gravity and inertia. And he came out to me one day. We were out back playing near the apple tree. And he said, Paul, he said, I got a great idea. Which, by the way, every time he said that, it ended up in a lot of pain for me. <laughs> Okay. And you probably should say that to yourself. When, when yourself says to you, I got a great idea, just stop and think of the story I'm about to tell you and say, no, no, thank you. I'm going to stay right here on the ground where God made me to stay. He said, I got a great idea. We, we were raking leaves. He said, take one of these leaf bags, these big, giant, hefty bags for leaves. He said, climb up on the top of the tree fort in the apple tree, hold on to it and jump off, and you'll float to the ground like a parachute. Now, he knew my fascination. I would make parachutes. I would make airplanes. He knew I was fascinated with this. And for some reason, due to my ignorance, I trusted him, even though he tried to kill me more than once in my life. And so I said, man, that sounds fantastic. So I got that hefty garbage leaf bag and I climbed up to the top of the apple tree on top of the tree fort on the top of the apple tree. And I looked down and there was a little voice I should have listened to. A still and a small voice that said, I don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> and my brother says, come on, don't be a chicken. Well, I couldn't be a coward. Um, and so I jumped off. I grabbed a hold of that bag and I jumped off of that roof of that tree fort. And sure enough, just like Satan, Tim did not lie to me. And that bag, sure enough, filled with air. Quick. So quick, it ripped right out of my hands. And uh, I learned something about the law of gravity that day. I made a foolish choice in not living my life in reference to the law of gravity. And boy... There's a couple of seconds in there while you're falling. And you know what's coming. Oh, it's not good. I hit that ground. And I'm telling you what, first thing that happened is I was pretty sure my knees were now where my shoulders were supposed to be. 
and it knocked the wind out of me. I thought I would never breathe again. I was sure I was going to die. And my brother came running over to me, and he kicked me. Talk about kicking a man while he's down, right? He kicked me. He said, you dummy, you let go of the bag. Now get up there and hold on to the bag this time. Now, you know me. I went right back up that tree. Bag in hand. Not going to let go this time. And so this time, I wrapped my hands around that bag. I mean, I'm not letting go. And when I got to the edge of the treehouse, that still small voice wasn't so small anymore because I was just now starting to breathe again. And that voice said, shouted to me, I really don't think this is a good idea. And he said, come on, jump. It'll be great. It was great, all right. I jumped. And I got to tell you, two things happened. Number one, that bag filled with air, and I did not let go. That was really cool. And I actually did the parachute thing for about an eighth of a second until another law took over. It has to do with expansion, um, tensile strength, and several other things. And the bottom of the bag ripped out completely. And here came the earth again at a great rate of speed. And it was just a couple seconds while you're falling. And I'm thinking, well, it's over. And this time, because it hurt so bad with my knees, I thought it might be better just to land on my backside. Really bad idea. I mean, it hurt. So my breath went to like Wisconsin. It was gone. And I thought for sure, this, this, is, this is it. And my brother's laughing. He's laughing, and, uh, and I'm seriously in and out of consciousness. I mean, I, I have jolted everything, but I heard something. We had this squeaky old back door, an old farm door, you know, the screen, and I heard that thing squeak and slam, and I opened one eye as I was getting ready to die, and I saw my mother flying out of that back door with a broom, not on a broom, with a broom. <laughs> And I saw her run over my brother Tim, and she beat the liver out of him with that, with that broom handle. And it felt, I mean, I said, thank you, Lord. I'm going to see it in just a second, but thank you for letting me see the destruction of my brother before I die. You're so good. And she beat the tar out of him, and then she comes running towards me. I thought, oh, whew, thank God for her mother. And she starts beating me with a broomstick. And I thought, what in the world? She goes, I was up in the attic cleaning, and I saw the whole thing. I said, well, what are you hitting me for? She goes, for being dumb enough to climb that tree the second time. What's the matter with you? <laughs> I tell you the whole story, I tell you what, when you live your life without reference to gravity, there is pain and destruction, and I want to tell you the truth today. When you live your life as if God does not exist and has said nothing, you can expect pain, destruction, and, and misery in its wake. Don't lean on your best ideas. Lean on what he said in all your ways. Acknowledge him. And the next time Satan comes to you and says, hey, I got an idea. Tell him, you know what? I got a better idea. It's what God said. And I think I'm going to go with God's ideas because your ideas hurt. And, and they bring such pain and destruction. In all your ways, acknowledge him. What's that mean? 
That means when the tempter comes to you, and you know that favorite sin of yours. We go to it for comfort when we think God's not doing his job. I know I'm, I'm telling the truth this morning, and it hurts, it hurts, but you got to hear it because the flip side of this thing is gorgeous. When we organize our life around the fact that God is and that he has said something, when we orient our life around the reality of God and, and the beauty of his word, his law, which is given not to take life away from us, but to give us life. When we, when, when we push into the presence of God instead of being held by our sin, the beauty on the other side is so worth it. So stop being deceived. Stop ordering your life as if there's no God and as if he has said nothing. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Now, what that doesn't say is that all the paths are going to be sunshine and roses. Mm-mm. But here's what you can be assured of. He will lead me in the paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. And by the way, the very next verse, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, guess where some of those paths lead? Yeah, they lead to some dark, scary places that you would not choose to go in on your own. But you go because he is leading you and he is directing you and you've oriented your life around the reality that he is and that he has said something. And as a result, he is, you are following him wherever he leads. Does that make sense this morning? When we do what Solomon says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, when we do that, when we trust in him with all our heart, just like you trust in gravity with all your heart, and when you don't think you got a better idea than the law of gravity or a better idea than the law of God, and when in every aspect of your life you acknowledge, hey, God is, God is, He's here, and he's got something to say about what I'm fixing to do or not do. And then when you adjust your life according to God, that's called faith. Instead of self, that's called flesh. Then the paths straighten out before you. When we do this, it's called obedience. But when we don't do exactly that, that is sin. The wages of sin is death and there are no exceptions. So let me give you three takeaways. These are some applications today. All right, and then we're done. Number one, stop flirting with sin. And stop doing it now. Today, stop flirting with sin. It's killing you. The Indians used to tell a parable to their children. They said a, a young boy was out hunting in the woods. It was cold fall morning, and he came across a baby viper, a baby rattlesnake. He picked up his war club to kill it, and the rattlesnake said, I'm so small, I'm cold, and I cannot move. Don't kill me. I'll be your friend. And in a moment of foolishness, the young brave picked up that baby rattlesnake and put him inside his buckskins to keep him warm. 
and went and hunted the rest of the day and he and the snake would speak back and forth, became great friends. On his way home, he felt a sting right underneath his heart. And he looked down in horror to realize that that snake had struck him. And as the venom began to take its toll and he sank to his knees, he said to the snake, he said, why? I saved your life. I was kind to you. I took you in. To which the snake replied, you knew what I was when you picked me up. Stop flirting with sin. It never changes its nature. It's as true as the law of gravity. The wages of sin is death. Some of you are, are flirting big time with sin. Number two, repent. And specifically, repent of living the vast majority of your life as if God didn't exist or was of little consequence. Can I be more specific? We need to repent of de-godding God. We have all done it. We've done it today. We've done it today. We need to get real and we need to get honest before God at where we say, God, I'm better at being God than you. I'll take over from here. And we've all done it. And I want you to ask, in the midst of that repenting, I want you to ask a question. God, what would, what would my life look like if I stopped de-godding you and put you on the throne and, and bowed down in front of the throne instead of me being on the throne and expecting you to bow to my wishes? How would my life look different? How would I relate to my spouse differently? How would I relate to my church differently? How would my recreational activities be different? How would my pursuits be adjusted? And you know what the truth of the matter is? Some of you are afraid of the answer to that because it would change your life so much. And you're afraid that the new life that you would gain wouldn't pay off or wouldn't meet your needs the way your current life is meeting your needs. And that's the lie of the enemy because Satan knows if you ever get to that point, he'll never get you back. So glorious and beautiful is the presence of God when we live before him in the justification that Jesus gives to us through the cross and through the resurrection. So glorious is God's presence, you would never go back. And he knows it and he lies to you and we believe it and we stay mired in sin. We must repent and repent vigorously today. Last one. Begin meditating on God's word moment by moment. Gideon's God's word. That's why I love you guys. You know, it's not a denomination thing. It's just a gospel thing. They, these crazy people called the Gideons actually believe if you give someone the Bible that, that God's word can transform their life. Can you believe that? What a crazy thought. And it works. Amen. Your word have I hidden in my heart, David said, that I might not what? Sin against you. The more of God's word that you have in your heart, I promise you, the more you will orient your life around his reality and what he's had to say. It is purely proportional. We spend 15 hours a week watching TV, 15 minutes in the Word. We think, you know, I just don't know why I don't love God. I do. Let's get real. 
Let's become word-saturated, and when you do, you will become God-centered. And the world gets exposed for what it really is. Let me invite our musicians to come. We're going to sing a response song. You can come forward, or you can stand right there and do business with God, but you need to respond. I need to respond to what we've heard today. As they're coming, let me share with you in closing this beautiful prayer by our Puritan forefathers called the Awakened Sinner. Here's what the Awakened Sinner says to God. He says, Oh, my forgetful soul, awake from thy wandering dream, turn from chasing vanities, look inward, forward, upward, view thyself, reflect upon thyself, who and what thou art, why here, what thou must soon be. Thou art a creature of God, formed and furnished by him, lodged in a body like a shepherd in his tent. Dost thou not desire to know God's ways? O oh God, thou injured, neglected, provoked benefactor, when I think upon thy greatness and thy goodness, I am ashamed at my insensibility. I blush to lift my face, for I have foolishly erred. Shall I go on neglecting thee when every one of thy rational creatures should love thee and take every care to please thee? I confess that thou hast not been in all my thoughts, that the knowledge of thyself as the end of my being has been strangely overlooked then I have never seriously considered my heart need. But although my mind is perplexed and divided, my nature perverse, yet my secret disposition still desire thee. Let me not delay to come to thee. Break the fatal enchantment that binds my evil affections and bring me to a happy mind that rests in thee. For thou hast made me and cannot forget me. Let thy spirit teach me the vital lessons of Christ. For I am slow to learn. And hear thou my broken cries. It's a good prayer. Maybe you can just.